Good morning. What I'm going to talk about in this fourth lecture is going to be about one of the most uh, significant changes uh, to, to human activity. That is the intensification of subsistence and of agriculture and pastoralism. Now, agriculture, um, we kind of all understand uh, because we all get our food from it one way or another regardless of where we come from in the world. Pastoralism is uh, uh, less commonly, less easily understood because pastoralism is something that many fewer people do these days. But it's to be understood in the same context as agriculture because it's what people do when they can't do agriculture. In a sense, it's half of the toolkit. It's... uh, ways of using more marginal lands um, and intensifying food production on them, but in a sense using animals as a biological filter for that environment. That is, you might be in East Africa, it might be impossible to uh, plant crops in any sustainable or predictable way, but if you have cattle then those cattle can forage off scrub um, and those cattle can be one and the same, a source of food, a source of wealth, a source of status. So I'm going to talk about agriculture in the first instance and then move on to half of the toolkit, if you will. Returning to a picture that I showed in the previous lecture, that by the time we get to around the uh, 15th century, uh, the proportion of hunters and gatherers left on the, on the world are, are very few. But in fact, agriculture was a very uh, successful if you, strategy. If you want to count the numbers of people that engaged in it, it would have spread in a virus-like way um, and infected uh, millions of people uh, with the enthusiasm of planting it, or at least that's when well, one narrative goes. Uh, what does it involve? Well, first of all, moving from hunting and gathering is a shift towards control of the food supply, a total control of the food supply. What was once appropriated from nature in a reasonably, usually sustainable sort of way Um, move towards actually harnessing nature towards towards food production and controlling its multiplication, controlling where you're going to use it, Um, intensifying it around where you live rather than moving towards your food. You put your food around you. There are a number of consequences of this. Now you think, first of all, if you have a subsistence crisis... And as a hunter-gatherer, you've intensified food around you unwittingly because of what you consume, because of the seeds that you distribute, and so on. Um, What would push you towards, towards agriculture, towards further intensification? One major issue would, of course, be be increased population size and increased population density. 
with increased population size and population density, being able to produce more food should be an important and useful thing to do. But if you change other behaviors around that, um, then those can have unforeseen consequences. And the problem with the archaeological record is that we don't have the kind of definition that would really be able to tell the story well. That is, if we have fossil evidence of changing health status, we would hope it would improve, but actually we quite see that it's the opposite. Well, the likelihood is that in the shorter time span, health would have improved. Um, fertility would have increased. Population could increase very rapidly, but it would have increased unpredictability of the environment because increased food capture, increased population size, population density could very easily lead to population crash. And the other thing that happened at the origins of agriculture, simply by moving people into close proximity to each other, as agriculturalists working together, the formation of villages, you then create the possibility of fixing infectious disease in human populations. When we look at the kind of now classical third world picture of undernutrition and infection and so on in developing countries, um, these are the patterns that establish themselves with the origins of agriculture. Diarrheal disease would not be a major issue for human populations if you live in, in a dispersed way. That is, you eat, you defecate, you move on. Once you put people together and they eat and they defecate and they don't move on, then you have the potential for transmission of diseases by the people or route. The ecological impact of this also is important um, because by controlling the food supply using a small number of highly productive species, sort of reduce biodiversity. Reducing biodiversity would have also uh, reduced ecological stability. So by reducing biodiversity and using a small number of, uh, of crops, you also increase the possibility of your entire crop being wiped by um, uh, a, a plant disease. Less commonly thought about, the emergence of inequality. This is a debated issue, uh, because exactly how inequality could emerge is... is, is uh, uh, there's the emergence of inequality among hunter-gatherer societies, um, and there's um, inequality among um, agricultural societies, and I'll show slides later um, about this. But the emergence of inequality was by no means, no means um, universal. That the largest urban formation after the origins of agriculture in, in the Middle East, which is now in contemporary Turkey, someplace called Chatal Huyuk. Don't ask me to spell it. Chatal Huyuk. Just try and remember those words. They roll off the mouth. Say after me. Chatal Huyuk. Say it. Okay. There you go. Feels nice, doesn't it? Feels nice. Okay, so now you, now you remember it because you've actually said it. Uh, it was a, an urban formation where um, sufficiently well preserved to show that uh, uh, by about 8,000 years ago there were about 5,000 people living there. That was a city. I live in a, an urban formation of 5,000 people and they call it a village in the contemporary world. So you have to rethink what a, what a city might be. 
But there's no apparent inequality within that urban formation. And yet, inequality emerges in many other places. Why is there inequality in some places and not in others? Well, you can't really get to that one because you need to understand social systems and you can't really get them from, from, uh, from, the, from the archaeology. And the relevance of this to the present day is that it's made ongoing changes to global food supply, that we've reduced the number of foodstuffs Total control of food supply using a small number, small number of foodstuffs, and then these become the dominant staples for uh, the majority of the dietary intake of the planet. There'll be a later lecture where I talk about contemporary food supply, but really, what people control, what people use, is really set more or less 10,000 years ago or so. <coughs> Places that saw the origins of agriculture. There is not one epicenter. Uh, major, major centers are in so-called Southwest Asia, that is the, the Middle East, around present-day Iraq, uh, um, around uh, East Asia, uh, present-day present -day China, if you will, in Mesoamerica, Central America, around present-day Mexico. And then more recently, centres um, in West Africa, Southeast Asia, and in New Guinea. All of them um, viewed to have seen the emergence of agriculture um, at uh, between seven and 10,000 years ago. All of them independently, all of them with different staples, all of them with, with, with different systems. So in Mesoamerica, the principal staple is, is maize. And uh, who's been to Mexico? Okay, who's looked at a marketplace in Mexico? Okay, have to do it. Uh, and you look at the, if you look at the diversity of, of maize in Mexico, there's red maize, there's yellow maize, there's white maize, there's kibbled maize, there's maize of all kinds of varieties that simply never get exported anywhere. They just stay in Mexico. There's still incredible uh, uh, diversity in the maize crop in Mexico. That is the epicenter for maize. It's an incredible place, Mexico, because many of the contemporary foods that are you know, in the present-day food system um, were used in agriculture from the earliest days of agriculture in Central America. Incredible place and worth going if you, ever have the, if you haven't been and you have the opportunity to put it on your map, put up on your list of things to do. There is also, there is also uh, some of this earliest agriculture um, is, still, uh, is, is still practiced. There's still agriculture practiced in a way that was practiced when the Spanish arrived in Mexico City. And it's right on the edge of Mexico City. You don't have to go a long way. And it's very interesting to see the, the pattern of mixed agriculture. In Southwest Asia, this is the best worked example of all of them. Uh, wheat, barley, cattle, sheep, and goats. We can see in that already, you know, the formation of, of what was to become, a, you know, a, a global food system. In East Asia, millet, rice, predominant species, but also wheat and barley. So we think of wheat as being something that came from the from the west and then went to the east and so on. It's not quite true. 
even though in the East rice is the dominant staple, but wheat is becoming much more important in the diet of in, in Asian diets, particularly in the form of, of different kinds of noodles. Um, uh, but wheat has always been uh, uh, something that's been, that's been present in New Guinea. Taro is a root crop, and up until about 20 years ago, they thought, well, everybody were, you know, people were hunter-gatherers up there. When they opened up the highlands and they started to look at the um, um, archaeology in the, in the Wagi Basin in, in the highlands, they found actually very elaborate terracing, very elaborate um, organization of the swampland for, for, for taro cultivation, again, with a, with a, with a, with a very deep ancestry. So it's, uh, it's a story that continues to run. And understanding the origins of agriculture isn't a done deal. The timeline, the key events, if you will. Uh, domestication of wheat and barley in the Near East, about 10,000 years ago. Um, in West Africa, about 8,000 years ago. In China, about 7,000 years ago. Um, in Europe, we start from about 6,500 years ago. So different points of, 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 of emergence, and the archaeological record shows, you know, first of all, independent uh, development in, um, in the Near East, um, in Central America, um, in China, um, in New Guinea, and then you see the diffusion of those technologies to the periphery of those, of those places. By the time we get to, to, to England, is five and a half thousand years ago from the Middle East to, to England, those technologies. But you can understand that as these technologies move, the exact nature of what is being cultivated and what is being grown um, tends to meet local circumstances because, of course, these are um, climatically conditioned. <coughs> Even at the origins of agriculture, however, there was considerable diversity. The dominant... Um, narrative is that of emma wheat and einkorn wheat, which are kind of proto-wheat species uh, that were initially um, harvested uh, and grew at ever-increasing density as people used more and more of them. And it was not a big switch to be able to move from uh, the, uh, such a huge switch to move from um, the, the, the gathering of this stuff to, to, uh, to, to, to actually planting it. But there are a number of, of plant staples that could be uh, identified in, in various archaeological sites. So emma wheat, einkorn wheat, barley, rye, uh, but also peas, lentils, flax, and so on. And even at the origins of agriculture, there's some sites that have barley as a dominant crop, other sites that have einkorn wheat as a dominant crop, other sites that have a preponderance of lentils. So there's great diversity even at the origins of agriculture. It's not a, a monolithic, not a monolithic picture. And other things that were consumed at that time as well. In the Middle East it was a, a shift from roots and leaves towards domesticated towards domesticated cereals of just five species. Cultivated legumes, small number of species. Wild soft fruits um, reduced by at least half. Root crops, many, many different kinds, but reduced to just a small number of root crops uh, by the origins of agriculture. So, great diversity, and both locally and 
uh, across uh, across regions. <coughs> the timeline. Let's take just um, the Middle East. It's not, uh, you know, ten thousand years ago in the Middle East, somebody woke up and thought it's the twelfth of February. I'm going to plant wheat, and that became Wheat Day. Uh, as you would expect, it was a more gradual, progressive, uh, progressive scheme. And the timeline was extremely varied. So while you can say, well, 10,000 years ago, more or less, is the cut point when farming emerges. But herding would emerge later. These are five different archaeological sites in the Middle East that show the kind of timeline for these major, major practices. Gathering would have carried on. It's not as though people suddenly become agriculturalists. They go through a stage of what one would call hunter-horticulturalism, which one still sees in the world now, in, in Papua New Guinea, for example, in Amazonia, for example, where people cultivate something, but they go out and they still carry on foraging. They maintain some of those other behaviours because the intensification that people are practising is really you know, having the stability of the food supply to be able to do these other things. But what has happened progressively is these gathering declined as, as, as farming and cultivation became um, easier to do, if you will. Um, hunting is something that was perpetuated for thousands of years after the origins of agriculture. So people practice a mixed strategy of, of, uh, uh, of horticulture, agriculture, gathering and hunting and animals being brought into the fold, as it were, progressively, the domestication of animals uh, being, some, being something that, that, happened, uh, that, that, that happened progressively. Goats and then sheep. I mean, look at, a, look at the modern sheep. There are many modern sheep in Oxfordshire. Uh, but there are places where you can have a look at Neolithic sheep, and they actually look not too dissimilar from goats. In fact, they're both caprids, goats and sheep. Sheep are things that humans have largely engineered across 10,000 years. And they've engineered for, for, for wool, they've engineered for meat. And uh, that kind of human intervention results in uh, very um, different foods that humans consume. There's no sheep out there. Even the wheat and the maize and the rice that we eat these days is considerably um, different from the kind of wheat that was consumed at the origins of agriculture. The wheat that is consumed now um, is also considerably different from the wheat that was consumed 50 years ago. Uh, the hybrids that are used now um, have uh, produced wheat that has uh, very short stems, and has a very, a very high yield, yields of seed. And um, the contemporary potato is also very different from, uh, from a potato even 100 years ago. They are much higher in starch, um, and much larger in size, and, and, and so on. Uh, but what we're left with from the origins of agriculture is actually a very small number of crops, wheat, maize, rice, to some extent barley, then we have soybeans, and soybeans actually have become an increasingly, from China, have become increasingly important in the world because 
they do two things. They become animal feed and they become a source of oil, of oil seeds. So in the contemporary world, these things are, have become increasingly important. But it creates a number of problems, again, in the contemporary world. And one of them is um, exemplified by the consumption of cereals um, in, in Asia. No reason why somebody should be eating as much meat as they do in the UK and Germany, where we get 30% or more of dietary energy from, from, from animal sources. The Germans are actually the biggest meat eaters on the planet. Well, there are Americans, no, it's the Germans. Uh, but it's a close contest. Uh, but animal sources provide balanced amino acids. The issues of protein quality are important. If you look at Bangladesh, where only a tiny proportion of the population consumes meat, the majority doesn't consume meat. In India, for religious reasons, people can very, you know, minority of the population consumes, uh, consumes meat. Uh, people consuming rice and wheat, they're consuming cereals that are deficient in particular one amino acid, lysine. And so while they may get adequate protein from consuming a predominantly rice or wheat diet, actually getting the right balance of amino acids becomes problematic, particularly if diets are extremely simple. In those contexts, the only thing that saves people is the fact that they supplement rice with lentils and other pulses, so you get protein, protein complementarity. But these staples on their own um, do not uh, constitute, uh, constitute a balanced diet. And among extremely poor people, uh, poor growth among children, undernutrition among children, isn't just an issue of not getting enough energy, it's also an issue of protein, uh, uh, of protein quality. <coughs> what are the human biological changes with agriculture? Well, dental care is, is also not a new issue. Uh, skeletal assemblages show people to have had suffered from, from dental caries um, after the origins of agriculture uh, with the consumption of soft foods. And so, you know, if you've got soft food, if it's, uh, if it's um, a wheat-based product, people don't brush their teeth, you get the digestion or breakdown of, of uh, complex uh, carbohydrates into sugars, they linger in the mouth, and so the potential for dental caries is big. Decreased tooth trauma is less grit in the food. Basically, people consuming foods that are um, more digestible, easier to, uh, to, to masticate, and uh, contain less dirt in them, so less tooth trauma. Decreased height for age is, uh, is interesting because with that, uh, we see a kind of negative secular trend. If you think across human populations in the last hundred years ago, most parts of the world have seen some kind of secular trend towards increased body size. Certainly the well-off. Wherever there's been economic growth and economic improvement, populations have gotten taller. People have gotten taller. What we see with a transition to, to, to agriculture in the Middle East, quite the opposite, a reverse secular trend. And I'll show a picture in just a second. Um, here's the picture. It's based on collections of skeletal assemblages by Lawrence Angel, published in 1984, but a still classic study. And it shows uh, paleolithic hunter-gatherers 
um, in two locations, these are males, um, to have an average stature between 176 and 180 centimeters. Okay, I'm 184 centimeters, so it makes these guys that big, more or less. Okay, my hand's here. Um, can somebody stand up? Any male? Any male? It's usually Jared, but no. Okay. Okay. You could almost have looked a paleolithic hunter-gatherer in the eye. They're big people. And they're robust people. And when we look at the stature, this is this is problematic because a lot of this is based on long bone measurements. And and you can estimate stature from long bone measurements, but using a regression equation. This regression equation actually comes from uh, 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 people who were Americans who were killed during the Korean War. And so, you know, on autopsy, they made lots of measurements, so then they used long bone measurements. That one of the spin-offs was that they could use uh, a regression to estimate adult stature from, uh, uh, from long bone measurements. Uh, there are problems with that, so these are only approximations, but the interesting thing in this data is that there's a decline in stature of um, around six or seven centimeters, which persists all the way through pretty well to the classical period, uh, more or less. That size of negative circular trend is quite similar to the size of positive circular trend that's taken place in the last hundred years or so. Uh, so it suggests uh, a significant uh, uh, environmental impact and the primary one um, that has been posited is um, a nutritional stress but actually related to that is the, the emergence of infectious disease among, uh, among human populations Stanley, yep. there doesn't seem to be a specific trend this comes down and up I, mean, I don't think you can say too much about, uh, about exactly how much that goes I mean it's Nothing gets back up to gets back up to that uh, back up to that level. Um, there's been arguments about the extent to which um, um, the Iron Age resulted in improved living conditions um, in uh, in the Middle East that would have increased levels of stature, and that's all written about in in this particular article, which is which is on the reading list. But uh, the trend generally is the most important thing is is, is, uh, is that part of the graph. What kinds of stresses? Well, first of all, if you become an agriculturalist, um, you have a much more regular life. Um, you don't need to be wandering around the, the, the bush looking for food. So your seasonal variation in, in terms of uh, uh, following uh, the local ecology becomes less. But it becomes uh, regularized in terms, of, in terms of work patterns. We still have seasonal patterns of temperature, seasonal patterns of rainfall. And these seasonal patterns um, will dictate how we plan, uh, plant things. So this shows energy expenditure for a range of different subsistence patterns um, in the contemporary world. And what this shows is people in Papua New Guinea, <coughs> and, okay, the place is over-researched, but you still have lots of groups of people who are still practicing uh, hunter horticultural patterns or, or relatively simple patterns of, 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 of agriculture which are Sweden agriculture which kind of mimics the mimics the landscape if you will and you get this sort of cluster of values here 
But what's interesting when you look at South Indian rice farmers, for example, millet farmers in uh, Burkina Faso, um, agricultural laborers, uh, rice farmers in, uh, in, uh, in, in Myanmar, uh, you find that you have these periods when people are working hard. That is, you synchronize the planting season to, uh, to the rainfall, for example, if you are in, in, in Asia. When the rains come, your productivity is limited by your ability to plant things quickly and efficiently. So people form work parties, they come together, they plant, uh, plant systematically, because what you will have for the rest of the year will largely be determined by what you're able to plant at the right time, getting the right seasonal window. window. Um, who's seen planting in places like India or Nepal? Anybody? Yeah, where was that, Jay? Uh, Nepal and in Southwest China. Okay. Like, and when it happens, you, you see they, the landscape is, is, is incredibly worked. It's, it, it's terraced. Um, in, in Nepal, the rainfall is regulated and the rivers are regulated in a way that all the fields get relatively equal rain and rel relatively equal water. Um, when you come to, 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 the, to the monsoon season and people are planting out the terraces, everything has to happen in a great big hurry. And there isn't an option of leaving things for an extra day or two or a week or two. Even people come from other areas these days, if they're working in town, then people will come back for the planting season to help out with, 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 with putting stuff in the ground. That has implications, because not only do people live in villages, but you have everybody combining together, for example, in Nepal, during the monsoon season, when um, you have the greatest transmission of fecal oral root diseases, so you've had the highest levels of diarrheal disease, the highest levels of, of, uh, of, of all kinds of problems. Women leave their children at home to be looked after by other children because everybody has to be out in the field. Households fall apart because they have to do the most important thing at that time. And, you know... Start of the day, people need to be in the field and maximise the entire the entire uh, working day. So, agriculturalists get caught in a materialistic loop that we're in to the present day. That is, once you're planting, you have to maximise what you plant because this will determine what you can eat across the coming year. You are then caught in planting, weeding, harvesting, all these activities that need to be done fairly instantaneously. People get caught in maximizing production. By maximizing production, they then allow or enhance uh, fertility, if you can improve nutrition. And so you have this merry dance that goes on that involves ever, ever more work. So agriculturalists, paradoxically, do not live in a state of, of primitive affluence because they need to work to be able to, to, to sustain themselves. And so you have also the origins of a, of a, a regulated timetable for humans that comes with, with the origins of agriculture. Also, with intensification and being able to create excessive harvests, you produce surpluses, and those surpluses give you the potential for specialization. They give you the potential for trade. They give you the potential 
for urban formations. And they give you the potential for people to be engaged in activities other than, than, than subsistence. These are all things that are part of how we are and who we are to the present day. With the seasonal variation in physical activity, it's almost no surprise that there's seasonal variation also with respect to measures of nutritional status like body mass index, for example. So come the end of the year, before the planting season, this is usually the time of year when, when people have least food left in their stores, it's the time of year when their nutritional status is poorest, and it's the time of year when they need to be ready to, to, to work hardest. So you, you create a whole set of, of, of seasonal factors that, um, uh, uh, that, that, that create sort of multiple coincidental stresses. <coughs> In that context, um, thinking about undernutrition and infection, uh, you have a productivity cycle where what you plant determines how much food you have. This food then gets distributed along uh, familial, social, cultural lines, uh, in this case divided between adults and children, and generally where there is relatively inadequate food, children generally get privileged, just about in every society where that's, been, uh, where, where that's the case. You have the nutritional status of the adult that determines their physical work capacity. If you're an athlete, you know you have something called a physical work capacity. You have a, a VO2 max, and you know that you can increase that through training. But you know that also your VO2 max can decline if you're undernourished. So the ability to work determines productivity and food availability, and part of this cycle with productivity is infection. If we think back to the Nepal case again, um, having to work hard seasonally at a time when everybody's clustered together in the rainy season, or when viral disease is transmitted willy-nilly all over the place because people are supposed to defecate in a field on the edge of the village, but it doesn't always happen. I have pictures of feces in, in, in Nepali villages um, which could give a good presentation on their own. I would not suffer you that particular pleasure. Uh, and I have personal experience of being in Nepal in the wet season when people are planting everything and you know where you're supposed to get to and you know you just can't get there in time. So you have this cocktail of infections circulating. And if you're, you know, if you're not up in the hills in Nepal, if you're on the Terai, um, you have the other issue of of another major disease that is, that, is, that is quite seasonal, which is malaria. So anything that can be transmitted from person to person, where people are aggregated, you know, you have the possibility of infection really muddying the waters, if you will. And in childhood, you already know that infection has a powerful effect on child growth and on nutrition status. The small body size of adults that we see after the origins of agriculture would be exactly the kind of set of relationships that one sees in a Nepali village in the present day. The detail will be different, but the principles are very much are very uh, are very much like that. Okay. 
nutrition and food is not necessarily benign either. We talk about the environment of evolutionary adaptedness somewhere in the Paleolithic and before that as a time when we became what we are, evolutionarily, genetically, and so on. That picture, as I've said previously, is a false one. I've talked about the earlier sort of genetic adaptations that happened before, uh, before this particular uh, period in humanity. But here's an example of something that humans are still adapting to. Can I ask anybody if there's anybody in the room who is gluten intolerant, wheat intolerant? Put your hands up if you are. Nobody. Okay. That's very lucky. Uh, not lucky for me, of course. Uh, uh, does anybody here is lactose intolerant? One person. Okay, that would be about right. Uh, the mere fact that there is... There isn't gluten intolerance in this room, but there is gluten intolerance in Oxford. And the mere fact that there's lactose intolerance suggests that we're still adapting to novel factors in our diet. Uh, this example shows a, a, a genetic factor, HLA-B8, um, a factor that is associated with, um, with gluten intolerance. And the higher the level of HLA-B8 in the population, the more gluten intolerance there is. And, and it shows a gradient um, from Ireland, if you will, all the way through to the Middle East, that in the Middle East there is much less gluten intolerance because, so the argument goes, um, agriculture happened there many, many, many years earlier, and so there was genetic adaptation to it. Now, the local ecology in, that, in, that, in those circumstances would be something like this. If you are allergic to gluten and allergic to wheat products and you consume them, you will get diarrhea. Nobody will know why you're getting diarrhea because you could get diarrhea from a whole range of other infective possibilities. If you're around child and you get diarrhea, you could actually die very easily. So the fact that there has been selection uh, for um, gluten tolerance suggests that actually there was high mortality from gluten intolerance at one time, particularly, particularly in the Middle East. So a new food, a novel food, actually carries danger. The gluten itself is a part of the protein, but it is actually toxic to some people. Yeah. Question about food adaptation a little more recently, um, so you can answer after conflict better. But just wondering about something that happens even within a generation, like the sort of very recent peanut allergies that are so extreme and young children today that didn't really exist 30 years ago. Where is that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll, I'm not going to speculate now. I've got a bloody recorder on there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll speculate at the end of the class if I can. If I can. That's okay. There may be other people that have answers. There are people more intelligent than me, like Medica, for example. <laughs> you might have an answer. But can I come back? Yeah. Okay. Um, malaria as a, as a new stress. Um, human malaria has been linked to the origins of agriculture. That's already um, uh, uh, a known story. Um, 
The transition to agriculture involved a reduction in dietary diversity, especially of pro-oxidant nutrients. Um, with high mortality, falciparum um, infection, uh, there was a drive to antioxidant stress-based genetic adaptations against malaria. So this particular story about glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, and those with it are more prone to lysis when um, subjected to malaria, so oxidant stress uh, results in red, uh, red blood cell rupture, and therefore the parasite can't lodge itself. It's, a very, it's not a good thing to have, but relative to having malaria, it's a better thing, and therefore there are many forms of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency in many parts of the world, <coughs> including, <coughs> including the, the Middle East and the Mediterranean region. Now, um, uh, Sol Katz at the University of Pennsylvania put forward a story about pro-oxidant um, uh, pro stress and the consumption of favor beans. That's broad beans. You can buy them here in the summer on the market. They're part of the diet. Um, small amounts make no difference. But if you're somebody that is uh, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficient, favor bean consumption actually promotes lysis. It sounds perverse, but in the context of malaria, it's something that is seen as a sort of gene culture co-evolution <coughs> that promotes uh, resistance, uh, resistance uh, uh, against malaria. So and has promoted um, uh, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiencies in the region. Um, so, exposure to oxidative stress um, provided conditions to success of genetic me uh, mechanisms against malaria, reliant on sensitivity to oxidant stress. Cucumil is the thing that's in, in favor beans. And what it does is um, it... Uh, uh, promotes the rupture of red, red blood cells when the plasmodia invade the red blood cells. So um, it's actually you know, potentially very harmful, but um, it's a question of what is the least harm, malaria or, um, or, or uh, hemolysis when exposed to malaria parasites. Social stratification, I've already mentioned. Um, Captain Panterbrick in, in Durham has produce these charts which show degrees of sedentism among different populations um, and uh, among uh, hunter-gatherers and hunter-horticulturalists and uh, uh, population relative to ecological productivity. And so sort of, she's, she's classified them as according to uh, uh, whether they're stratified or, uh, at all, so they get a zero if they're not. If they fall into wealth classes, they're given a one. If they fall into descent classes, so wealth classes means you know if you are, are, are wealthier, then you are you know you you you're, you're different from those who, who are not. Descent classes means you pass on your wealth to the next generation. So it's a, a different level of wealth, if you will. So you can have immediate wealth and you can have transferable wealth. And what she finds is is, is little surprise that. Um, those who have the highest degree of sedentism have the highest level of both wealth classes and the highest, highest number of, uh, 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 of descent classes. Um, so with the origins of agriculture, it's argued, you have the um, increased, uh, increased levels of inequality. Again, something that persists to the present day in relation to, to diet and nutrition, and something I'll talk more about in a, in a subsequent talk. 
So to summarize uh, uh, agriculture, we have a simplification of diet, we have a smaller number of staples, increased workload, sedentization, infectious diseases, seasonality, gluten intolerance, and uh, the development of lactose tolerance. And I'll talk more about lactose tolerance when I get on to, to pastoralism. And uh, um, the features of pastoralism which differ from agriculture. So it's half of the toolkit potentially involves very different behaviours. And this is a map of uh, Africa showing uh, pastoralist societies across Africa. And most of them are put together by Michael Little, who is at the State University of New York in Binghamton. Um, most of them characterized in, in, in East Africa, and some of them in uh, Sahelian, uh, Sahelian zones. So if you know Africa at all, and I don't because I'm not an Africanist, but I know, I know where the Sahara Desert is, and I know where uh, um, Sudan and Ethiopia and Tanzania are, uh, pastoralist groups are all found in semi-arid zones. In this case. They're also found in other places of marginal pro uh, productivity. Uh, for, um, for example, the Sami reindeer herd herders in, in, in Finland, Scandinavia. Um, there's more than one way of, of, uh, more than one way of being a, a pastoralist. But this is a response to living in a marginal environment. In the African context, and I've got to concentrate on that, um, the limiting factor is rainfall. And how you deal with your subsistence in a place where you actually can't plant very much. You may be able to for some of the time. And once you distinguish pastoralists who are just doing animals all the time, have primary reliance on domesticated animals for work, for food, and so on, from agro-pastoralists who have a short sedentary phase. So they have a short wet season, they settle down, they plant, and they have one window of opportunity. So they have a, a mixed strategy. So in a sense, they are people who have taken the toolkit and use it in some places, but when you actually push out from those places to much places of much lower rainfall, all you're left with is, is the animals. Um, so animals are a biological filter of, of plant productivity. An animal can graze on things that human can't eat. It produces milk, and milk is a, is a, is a, is a pretty nutritious foodstuff in terms of, in terms of energy, if you get enough of it, and in terms of, in terms of protein. So it's practiced where there's low biological productivity. So it doesn't have to be specifically hot. It can be, it can be up in the mountains. It can, be, you know, it can be in Peru, uh, in, in the Andes. And it involves regular movement. So as with hunter-gatherers, people move around, but they move around in, in very different ways. Animals are also prestige goods. People don't dispose of their animals unless they really need to. And in present day, you know, pastoralist societies have been undergoing um, uh, <coughs> challenges, of, of uh, environmental challenges that have, 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 have led, to, led to starvation. Selling the animal is the last thing you want to do. Killing the animal for food is the last thing you want to do. Because once you've done that, you've actually lost prestige, you've lost uh, food for labor, you've actually lost a capital good. So selling animals is never, is never a good thing. So pastoralists don't actually eat as much meat as you might expect them to. But it's a complex system. It's an information society. 
Um, it's an information society because to be able to manage your livestock, you need to be able to get the right demographic structure for your animals. You need the balance between your family and the animals you have. Exactly what kinds of animals? Decisions are important uh, because, because it needs to be able to match the kinds of physical characteristics that people, people live in. You have spatial mobility. You need environmental information. So you need to know where to go. And it's not such a set pattern. So you talk to people to find out where the best forage might be. And you know, you're in competition with other, with other groups for that forage as well. Uh, <coughs> reproduction of livestock. You manipulate the reproductive cycle of the livestock. Not necessarily because you want to maximize the number of offspring. You want to, may want to replace what you have. But you manipulate the reproductive cycle to manipulate um, the milk availability from an animal. Because, because the animal's milk production is in relation to its, 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 its reproduction. So it's a highly complex formation. Um, and the livestock management and the spatial mobility has a number of contexts uh, attached to it. So water availability and forage availability, both are important. And that arrow, the seasonality, really should also go to foraging and water because, because it's the seasonality, the, 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 the seasonal cycle that affects that. Uh, the potential for livestock disease. Um, dangers and raiding. So people practice a different kind of optimality. It's not optimal foraging, but it's an optimality, optimal herding that people are practicing, um, which is not such a huge step away from, uh, from, from hunter-gatherer practice. In terms of food and seasonality, um, there isn't a standard um, uh, pastoralist diet, but one that varies in its dominance of milk and milk products. Now, milk isn't necessarily used directly either. Milk may be turned into uh, things that can be stored. And because people are moving around, there's a certain amount of food on the hoof, but there's a certain amount of food that needs to be stored efficiently. Um, and I'll come on to that very, very shortly. And this is Takana, um, Kenya, um, showing that uh, during the wet season, there's a great reliance on milk products. Um, during the late dry season, after harvest, people planting what they can um, during, the, during, the, during the wet season. And then later in the year, they can harvest. So the seasonality there is somehow similar to agriculturists, but um, only for part of the year are people actually growing things. They're not staying there. They'll plant, move off, come back. And, and harvest when the, when, the time is, when the time is right. Also, great diversity in the extent of agro-pastoralism that, 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 that people practice. And I should note here that these other, sugar and oil, suggest the extent to which groups are already commoditizing um, their practice, which, as intelligent people, they will do, uh, because it makes good sense. You have prestige goods, and you can sell those prestige goods for a good price, then of course you're going to engage in trade in food that is energetically dense and is going to be um, uh, is going to be relatively cheap. Selling meat, selling skins, selling milk, 
and milk products, all of these things are prestige goods relative to these things, sugar and oil, which are cheap because they're produced internationally and are on the international market. Uh, but suffice it to say that the extent to which milk and milk products, meat, meat is just a minority uh, food uh, uh, for, for, for all pastoralist groups. The extent to which milk is consumed varies enormously. So it's almost like um, milk and cereals are in kind of inverse relationship in, uh, in, in, in pastoralist diet. Just a couple more things. Herding strategies to buffer against seasonal nutritional stress. And the example I'm using is with Tuareg in, in, in Mali. And what these three different pictures show is labor requirements and milk production for cattle, for camels, and for goats. Why should you practice a mixed strategy? Here's a heritage slide of mine. It comes from an overhead, uh, which I've turned into a PowerPoint slide. Um, I'm very proud to have a heritage of how many decades of teaching uh, that shows a mixed strategy is actually a good thing. If, for example, you have camels, camels are expensive and they produce the most milk per hour of labor involved. Uh, if you look at labor output, though, they're expensive in terms, of, in terms of labor output. If you have cattle, then your labor output is a lot less, but your milk output is, a lot, um, uh, is much, much lower. If you have a mixed strategy, say goats and camels, uh, goats and cattle, um, then you get you get you get more milk, uh, and the labour output is is lower than it would be if you were just doing goats, for example. Also, more significantly, you reduce. This is a coefficient of variation. That means the the variation across the year in terms of milk production for those animals. You reduce the amount of variability across the year. So there are two things. You want to produce as much as you can, but actually you want to ensure a supply across the year as much as you can. And by manipulating your animals, you can balance out the need to produce volume. Produce a lot of volume, and you can't store it, then it's really not much use to you. You really need to think about balancing how much you, how much you can produce and, and how much you can have across the whole year. So this is just an example from that, which is you know, taken from that pre previous slide, but it just exemplifies the importance of minimizing labor, um, um, maximizing yield, and, and minimizing variation across the year in terms of milk production. It's actually a complex equation. This you've seen before, but last one, lactose intolerance. This is a recent adaptation. This is, okay, I did this, um, and it just shows um, uh, gene frequency in different populations, pastoralist populations um, that consume, um, uh, and other groups, um, that consume uh, unprocessed milk and those that consume um, uh, milk products. A PLA, persistence of lactase activity, gene frequency, is highest among those that consume unprocessed milk. There are pastoralists out there that are lactose intolerant. How do they do it? Well, straightforwardly, they do it because they've got brains. And because they observe, they're good scientists, they watch what happens, they know that milk can go off. There are many ways in which you can detoxify milk if your toxin is lactose. You know, you can heat and skim milk to get cream and skimmed milk, you can ferment it, produce sour cream, um, you can produce um, buttermilk, you can boil it, 
you can reprotonize, you can really dump the lactose in many, many different ways. You can produce cheese, you can produce dried milk protein, um, you can produce butter and ghee, you can produce fresh cheese, you can do a whole range of things that will detoxify milk. So you don't just need to drink the milk, you turn it into something that is both um, uh, detoxified, got rid of the lactose, but also, as a cheese, is energy dense. Cheese is an energy-dense food, it's a protein-dense food, and something that could be carried around very uh, relatively easily. So in summary, um, domestication of plant and animal species developed in different sites with crops reflecting local ecology, dietary diversity decreased, um, led to adverse health, uh, sedentization led to the rise of infectious disease and subsequent adaptations, uh, and pastoralists uh, like non-industrial agriculturists also experience seasonality, but it's a very different seasonality. So these have set up kind of the patterns which persist to, to the present day. Thank you.